morning to you all. Two weeks ago, I spoke from Matthew 10 and 11 on the struggle of the Christian life. And that passage begins with a strong statement that if our lives in Christ are ever going to amount to anything, then we are bound to face opposition. Therefore, Jesus says, our response must be to ensure that we fear God, not man, in that sort of old-fashioned phrase, fear God. It's not a very comfortable phrase, is it? John Wimby used to put it like this. He said, don't worry about people doing people stuff. Concentrate on God doing God stuff. Now, and if all that sounds like rather bad news, then it's not, because that whole section of Jesus' teaching, of which that's the end, uh, finishes with an encouragement that we will be rewarded for every bit of opposition that we face. Uh, that we face. And finally, as Matthew's um, account does its, its sort of habitual pendulum swing from what Jesus taught to what Jesus did, uh, we find a clear reminder of what are true signs of God's kingdom. John the Baptist was a fine example, wasn't he, of someone who faced opposition for his obedience to God. And now, as it were, from death row, he sent messengers to ask if Jesus was really the Christ or not, should he be looking for somebody else. And all the answer Jesus gave him was to point out what was happening around, to say that the, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised up, and the poor are having good news preached to them. In other words, if God's kingdom is really here among us, then that's the kind of thing that we expect to see. And I think we all agreed a couple of weeks ago that we kind of like to see more miracles of healing, both here in our gatherings and out in our day-to-day -day life as well. But we're, perhaps that was a bit of a cliffhanger engine, uh, ending because we, um, we sort of worked that much out. But we didn't really speak very much about how we're going to get from here to there. <clears throat> The Bible passage I'd like us to look at this morning provides one answer to that question. And I think it also keys rather neatly into Jesse's talk last week about getting free from slavery, what enslaves us. This passage come from, comes from the prophetic writings of Isaiah, and it's normally interpreted as referring to the Babylonian exile. That's a period of, of Jewish history, um, lasting about 50 years, starting in around uh, 580 BC, when almost the entire population of Israel was uprooted from its own nation and plonked down uh, miles and miles away in Babylon, a far country, on the other side of a vast and forbidding Syrian desert. So that's the normal interpretation, but we should remember as we read that this is prophecy, and like all biblical prophecy, it probably has uh, more than one application to the world. In a nutshell, prophecy can be described as a foretelling of the purposes of God. And since our God is completely constant and unchanging, we can safely assume that the same kinds of things that he wanted to do for his people Israel in the Old Testament... Those very same kinds of things are the kind of thing he wants to do with us, his people, in the New Testament. And I'm not excluding Israel from that either. <clears throat> so let's read Isaiah chapter 35. It'll probably come up on the screen as soon as the guys can catch up. Oh, that was quick. In the King James? Good heavens above. Well, this is going to be fun. We'll see how this... Uh, how, the, how my version differs, and I might, I might be a little naughty in places as I read. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. 
and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And even if they're complete numpties, they can't get lost in it. No, is that what the KGV says? No. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This prophetic poem, the way I see it, falls into three sections. God's promise, the human response, and the result. Verses 1 and 2 are God's promise that the desert will blossom. Verses 3 to the first half of 6 are our response, strengthen the weak hands, etc. And the second half of 6 to the end are the end result, a safe road home. For the exiles. Before we look at the first section, though, we should take careful note of the context. My, my commentaries point out that this Isaiah 35 is actually the, the second half of a, of, a, of a matching pair with the preceding chapter. The chapter 34 describes the fate of Israel's neighbors, specifically Edom, and it's not very pretty reading. Edom had been an implacable enemy of Israel for years and years and centuries, in fact. It goes all the way back to the Exodus when the newly formed nation of Israel, being dragged, almost kicking and screaming by God, out of slavery in Egypt, asked to use uh, a major road called the King's Highway. And Edom say, nah, nah. Computer says no. Um, now, in chapter 34, the nation that refused Israel, the King's Highway, is going to be judged. And in chapter 35, a new king's highway appears for the people of God. Now, despite the uh, affront and the inconvenience, Israel was forbidden to take refuge on Edom because the two nations were actually cousins. Each nation was descended from uh, one of the rival twins of Genesis 25, Jacob and Esau, if you remember the story. Esau was the older twin. And as such, he stood to inherit the lion's share of, of Isaac's estate and to become the next in the line of patriarchs from which the people of Israel would spring. But he was not really cut out for the job. He just liked hunting. He didn't really like anything else. And coming home hungry from his beloved hunt one day, 
uh, he sold his entire birthright, his inheritance, to his scheming brother, Jacob, for a bowl of soup. That's, as it says in Genesis, how he despised his birthright. So it was that, that Jacob, not Esau, met with God and got renamed Israel. The younger brother, not the older, eventually became the ancestor of God's people. And what started as a rivalry between brothers eventually became warfare between nations. Resentful of God's blessing on Israel, Edom continually set itself up as a, as a rival, as a, um, a, a warring nation against it. Now, Israelites don't have to exact their own revenge, though. It is God, uh, chapter 34 says, who's going to do that. Along with other nations, the once fertile land of Edom will be turned into a scorching desert when the time of God's retribution finally comes. Not so Israel, as we read in chapter 35. Altogether, uh, a better choice for a Sunday sermon, I think. And we find this beginning in our first part, um, verses 1 and 2. God's promise. Seen from a, the perspective of a, a sort of con- conquered, ex- exiled Jewish person, person stuck in Babylon, you know, knowing that your own country is lying in ruins, these verses must have suggested a very particular hope that God was about to restore the fortunes of Israel and restore its people to the nation. The snow-capped mountains of Lebanon and the orchards and olive groves in Carmel and Sharon were a byword for rich fruitfulness. But they're a very long way off, a desert away. So deliberately keying into what must have been painfully sharp folk memories about the promised land, God now promises to reverse that entire sense of displacement and loss and pointlessness of the exile. Even the desert will become a place of abundant food and flowers. And it seems to me that those same feelings run very deep throughout society today. And there are some very negative responses that get unleashed um, on the world as a result. Is it not precisely because of those feelings of displacement, loss and pointlessness that young British men feel inclined to go and fight for ISIS in jihad? They've bought into the lie that a holy war will bring about a holy caliphate. Precisely the kind of homecoming that these verses speak about, when you think of it. But of course, it won't. So we shouldn't fear the jihadists or hate them. We should pray for them, that God will reveal the truth of Isaiah 35 to them and put them in touch with the people who are living it out. Other negative responses to those feelings include all kinds of escapism. Drink, drugs, gambling, pornography, meaningless sex, violent computer games. There is no end to the distractions our world offers for those who are feeling displaced, out of joint with life. Loss, loneliness, alienation, futility. But all those things only leave us feeling more cut off, more pointless, more lost than ever before. So we shouldn't despise or reject those who fall into those things either. We should pray for them, that God will reveal the truth of Isaiah 35 to them and put them in touch with the people who are living it out. This prophetic poem speaks of a true and eternal end 
to humanity's sense of exile, a joyful return to a homeland which we've heard of, which we know in our hearts exists, but which we haven't seen yet. For the second generation Jewish exile in Babylon, this prophecy would have seemed extremely specific. But I think we can validly suggest a much broader application, a much more general insight into what it tells us of the character of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, St. Paul, writing about the church, says this, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame, the, that's us, folks, by the way, to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen uh, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Paul sees in the church another example of God making streams in the desert, scorching sand becoming a pool, using what is not to overturn what is, to overturn the status quo, the way things currently are. He's turning a completely unpromising situation into something that is wonderful and fruitful for him. In worldly terms, the success of the church is endlessly surprising. But in terms of God's character, it's exactly what we should expect. Because, as they would say in uh, my beloved TV program, The Wire, that how he do. The very first words in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, describe how God made something, in fact, everything, out of nothing. From before time began, he just does make stuff out of nothing. That's how he do. So he shouldn't be surprised if he takes nothings like us and makes something beautiful and useful and fruitful of us. And like father, like son, when you think about it, we see very clearly the same creative character in Jesus. The king, born in poverty, surrounds himself by ignorant and unlearned men and chooses them to transform the world. With no obvious theological training, Jesus becomes the rabbi who outsmarts, outtalks, uh, kind of outguns all the others, all the brains of his age. From complete obscurity, um, he bursts onto the scene doing miracles, the like of which the world has never seen before or since. From the non-existence of death itself, he bursts into glorious life, not only for himself, but bringing it to the rest of humanity as well. Like his father, Jesus is quite accustomed to making something out of nothing. Even in the barren wastelands of the human heart, he creates from nothing a blooming, blossoming, fruitful, abundant life, such as we've never known before. And I suppose if we're going to be truly Trinitarian, as we are, we should also consider the work of the Holy Spirit. When we get filled with the Spirit, he gives us gifts that are completely independent of any natural ability that we bring. Granted, we might have to practice those gifts to get properly in touch with how God leads us to use them. But these are fully formed gifts that require nothing of us at all. I think I've been a Christian for four days the first time I cast out a demon I didn't know anything about demonology. I just read it in my Bible that day. So I thought, that's a demon, I'll cast it out. Get out. And it went. It, I mean, it's, it, it was a pretty decent story, really. It was terrifying at the time. There's a, um, a, a young man I knew, 
Um, he was off the scale drunk. Like, he got drunk and then drunk a bottle of Perno. So he really, really was drunk. And we were trying to tell him the gospel. And, um, <laughs> yeah, with a naivety of youth. <clears throat> and, um, and I thought, I know what's going on here. You've got a spirit of confusion. Spirit of confusion, get out of him. And he and was quite aggressive. And, um, and he, he fell over like a dead person. And I thought, oh dear, I've killed him. <laughs> this is problematic. Uh, especially since his sister was in the room with me. Oh, I can't just go and dig a hole in the garden. Or he was a big bloke anyway. It would have taken ages to dig. But, um, so I really, really was quite worried. But when he came to, he was stone cold sober and accepted Christ that day. Work that one out. I still can't to this day. The Holy Spirit gives gifts that are complete and fully formed without training, without knowledge, without anything. So creating something out of nothing was my point. I didn't mean to tell the story, really. But as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 12, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Holy Spirit's power is not dependent on us. It doesn't require a helping hand. In fact, I think it's lucky for us that he prefers to use weak people rather than strong ones. So as we heard last week, something as apparently um, powerless and irrelevant as worship can become a powerful agent for God's releasing, liberating change in our lives. Uh, Even this church here is, for me, a powerful testimony of how God works. He he promised Carol and me that he was sending us to plant a church, though he didn't tell us much about what was going to happen. And when we turned up here, there was nothing. It was just us and uh, two daughters saying, well, go on, Dad, prove yourself. Um, But as we look around now, we see that suddenly, pop, here's a church. As uh, as I felt the Lord say to me at our 10th birthday party celebrations at the Cayley, um, in the words of that uh, Disney song from Beauty and the Beast. There's something here that wasn't here before. There's something here that wasn't here before. Well, there is. There just is. Because that's that how God do, you know? If he, if he decides that he wants a scorching desert to become a fruitful garden, then a fruitful garden it will become. And a pretty spectacular one at that. So that's part one, God's promise. Part two is our response. As some of you will have noticed, verse three echoes the same concept of encouragement that we came across a fortnight ago. If you remember, in 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan is said to have strengthened David's hand in God. Strengthening hand, not heart. Changing not just attitude, but action. Here, Isaiah speaks not only of hands, but also knees. Not only actions, but sort of mobility from place to place as well. It's the walk and the work. But perhaps there's another implication here as well. At least once in the last 40 years or so that I've been paying attention to sermons, uh, I've, I've heard one that suggested these verses refer specifically to prayer. And I think there are quite good reasons to agree. Most of us uh, would instinctively associate kneeling with praying. And both Psalm 28 in the Old Testament and 1 Timothy 2 in the New speak also of lifting our hands to God in prayer. 
In fact, Ezra 9 verse 5 combines the two, as Ezra testified, I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. So even if the primary meaning is is simply about movement and action generally, getting on with it when times are tough, I suspect prayer is at least heavily implied in hands and knees. For the Christian, prayer is in any case a significant part of walking in the way God has set before us and of acting in the way he wants us to act. So I don't think it's going too far to suggest our first response to God's promise to make something new out of nothing should be to keep on praying. After all, 1 Thessalonians 5 encourages us to pray without ceasing. Philippians 4 says, says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything bring your supplications to God with thanksgiving for us. Paul himself indicates uh, in Colossians 1, you might remember, that for him prayer was a constant, constant activity of his life. And if that's still not enough to convince you, in Luke 18, Jesus teaches the disciples the necessity of persistence in prayer. And Luke introduces that parable with the phrase, and he told them a parable to the end that they might always pray and not faint. I think sometimes we give up too quickly in prayer. You know those bands people used to wear, what, what would Jesus do? If, if you think, what would the devil do? He would certainly tempt you to give up prayer sooner than you should. A well-known folktale from the days of the gold rush tells of a prospector who, uh, who bought for a few dollars a, a deep mine of a, a chap who just got that far and ran out of funds and given up. And the story goes that he, he trod down to the bottom of the mine shaft, raised his pick, and with one blow revealed a huge seam of gold that the other chap was just one pick strike away from. The old owner never knew how close he came to the big win. And when we pray, neither do we. Because we see nothing, 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 something. Ooh, that was nice. At the National Leaders Conference uh, 10 days ago, I met an old friend from the Riverside Vineyard who told me what I think is the most encouraging story I've heard for years. Uh, at that conference, uh, they, always, they always tell what they call encouraging stories. It's always things, people getting healed, people uh, getting wonderfully saved, and, and that sort of thing. And I never find it terribly encouraging. I always find it discouraging. I think, well, what about me? Why does this happen to me? Why does it happen to me? God doesn't love me. But, but, but this story was different. He, he told how, how for three years, he and a small team, uh, prayer walked around quite a rough estate um, in his part of London and saw absolutely no encouragement. But the only thing that, that went right was um, they sang some Christmas carols on the green at Christmas time and more people started coming to that. But the doors they knocked on, spiritually and in actuality, remained resolutely shut. They were getting nowhere. But they had heard God say they should pray, and they hadn't heard him say they should stop. So they continued faithfully and apparently pointlessly, ambling around the streets praying and trying to get into conversations if they could. And all of a sudden, one after another, not one but three doors opened, and three desperate cancer patients were instantly healed. And he told me that, um, that actually during the conference he had a, another telephone call from the parents of a, a baby they'd been praying for for some time who'd, suddenly, who, who'd been kind of due to die within months, suddenly, suddenly just healed. 
Now, those stories I do find encouraging because I, you know, I can't, I can't just heal someone, but I can pray for three years and see no results. I can do that. <laughs> do you see what I mean? It's a story of someone who's, who's getting the same results as I do most of the time. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But eventually striking gold. And it's not by trying some fancy new method or, or some special kind, you know, the prayer of Jabez or something like that. It's just sheer bloody-minded persistence. And I think we need to broaden all our instinctive definitions of faith to include more of an element of faithfulness on our own part. And as in the life... For my, as in life for my friends. So in this passage, verses 5 and 6, healing breaks out. Not where somebody gets it right first time, but where somebody strengthens his feeble hands and wobbly knees. And they're probably feeble and wobbly because he's been doing a lot and walking a lot. Keeps pressing in, keeps pressing on. One of my favourite ever rugby quotes, and I know I've bored you with it before, the South Africa captain, Francois Pienaar, attributed his World Cup win of his team not to the uh, undoubted brilliance of the backs who scored most of the points, but to the persistence and grind and grunt of the forwards doing what he called making the hard yards around the fringes of the scrum. (laughs) Not a man you wanted to meet around the fringe of a scrum, Francois (laughs) Pienaar. And as a church, I believe that we will win out eventually, not because of any flashy new teaching or uh, some sort of super-Christian coming in and showing us how it's all done, or by some experience of the Holy Spirit, because we faithfully grind on, forward in prayer and in action, winning those hard yards around the fringes of the spiritual scrum. So there's promise and response in Isaiah 35. Thirdly, and I am coming into land, I promise, the result. And that is a safe highway for the return of the redeemed. And I know uh, many of you like uh, hill walking in Scotland, and you will know that uh, in that engagement we're not often confronted with this particular difficulty. But one thing that you do need if you're going to walk any distance is a supply of water. I never even bother taking a water bottle with me because there's always water running down something that you can drink. But perhaps unsurprisingly, that water is the first thing Isaiah mentions as he enters this concluding section of the poem. As God recreates the desert, we notice that even the temperature has dropped from a kind of death valley temperature or, de- or dead sea temperature to something that's quite pleasant. In verse 7, the burning sand becomes a pool of water and those white dry grasses of the desert become luxuriant bulrushes. And in verse 8, Isaiah finally sees what all this is leading to. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. God isn't making this garden in the desert just for fun, because he can. Now, as in everything he does, behind it all is a plan to benefit humanity. In this case, a highway back to Zion, the city of God. To the Jew, that means the earthly Jerusalem, the capital and holy temple city of the promised land. 
to the Christian, it means the new Jerusalem, the city of God, pictured in Revelation 21, descending from heaven to earth. For the Jewish exile in pagan Babylon, all this meant that God would surely make a way for his people to cross what had been a lethal emptiness, the Syrian desert. Not only without harm, but actually with pleasure, singing songs and picking flowers as they went along. And after a joyful journey, they would return at last to Jerusalem, their centre of worship and law and national identity. So all that person had to do was to keep praying and feeding her faith as best she could, not give up, despite all the long years when nothing had changed. But for the Christian, it means even more. The redeemed of the Lord, verse 10, will finally come at the end of this earthly exile into the heavenly Jerusalem, of which we are true citizens. This is the end of a long journey that started in the Garden of Eden, where everything was perfect until humans messed it up. God's redemptive plan was never in any danger, but he had to create a lot of somethings out of nothing along the way. Out of one ancient man, Abraham, a numerous people who had become a light to the nations. A nation formed out of a slave tribe, brought out of Egypt in impossible circumstances. Then a kingdom under David and Solomon, prefiguring the divine kingdom to come. And finally, born in a stable, the God-man Jesus, sent into the world to redeem us from our sins. And before his all-sufficient sacrifice, the beginnings from nothing of a church that would carry on his mission to the world after he was gone. And somewhere along that great long journey from Adam to the New Jerusalem, he created the Kingdom Vineyard. One tiny pixel on an enormous screen. The big picture that he's painting. A people called to believe in his promise, to pray and work with persistence and courage. And as we help people make connections with God, to help God create and signpost a highway through the desert for all those who will accept Christ as Lord and Saviour. So yes, we want to see the lame leaping about like deer. We want to hear the tongues of the dumb singing and to chat with the deaf with all inordinary voices. Those are the true signs of God's kingdom. But they are not the kingdom. They're just signs of the kingdom. If we become faithful and persistent in prayer and practice, we shall so surely see these signs. But the end game, the purpose towards all this, or to which all, all this leads, is, is not so that we can see the fun stuff happening and feel good about ourselves. The real reason why the kingdom of Jesus is coming into this world as it is, and the real reason why God has seen fit to create the kingdom vineyard here in Northeast Fife, along with many other churches too, is the formation of a safe and joyful highway that leads from the place of slavery and exile to the very throne and heart of God. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're complete numpties, they won't go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. 
And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. Will you stand and say a prayer? Lord God of Israel, Lord God of our hearts, Lord who seeks to bring back the exiles and free the slaves, we thank and praise you that your purposes are the same today as they ever were. I want to pray right now for any who are feeling exiled, alienated, far from home in their hearts right now, that you will come and make a home with them. You lead us to the responses we need to make to take either the first step on that road or the next step on that road. By your spirit and through each other's encouragement, would you strengthen the feeble knees and, and the floppy hands so that we can walk and work as we should with you. So now come, Holy Spirit, and prepare for yourself a people who will walk that highway and work that highway, creating a highway for those who feel so far from you, to you. Equip us for the task, Lord. Give us those gifts of your spirit we need the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, prophetic insight, gifts of healing, gifts of evangelism. Just come. Move among your people now, I pray. Just come, O oh Lord. Just want to wait, wait, wait on the Lord for a minute. Just don't... Um, don't go anywhere. Just, just let him speak to us. Just come, Lord.